0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with John Abramson. John Abramson is a physician and author of Overdosed, and the S is a dollar sign, so get that, America and his new book, Sickening. Oh, Overdosed America and his new book, Sickening. <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy. How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It, which is out on February the 8th. John consults as an expert in litigation involving the pharmaceutical industry and has served as an unpaid consultant to the FBI and Department of Justice. Why don't they pay him? Would you ever wonder that, Jess? Maybe he's doing it out but of I love. Yeah, out love of passion. He's he a pretty <laughs> nice guy. Yeah. It's was- a good podcast. Now that Under the Skin is on Apple Podcast, please leave a review there. Please leave it. Is it yeah, important? I would like more. Please leave more reviews. Jenny needs reviews. What do you think of Jenny Mayfin? Do you like her? it's not a review of me oh sorry review the podcast <laughs> itself do you like it the things that we're saying to you if you'd like to listen to the rest of this podcast and all of my weekly under the skin podcast it's like going to a university that's what it's like for me It's not. I'm not saying I'm the university I'm just a fellow student with you talking to these great people all you've got to do anyway is subscribe to Luminary on Apple Podcasts it costs you some money a little bit of money about the equivalent of say if you had a heroin habit not even a habit No, no that's wrong it's reasonable. So it's quite a <laughs> cup of coffee. Anyway, look, it's not A very much. cheap cup of coffee. A cheap cup of coffee. What, every month? Yeah. Uh, who's, who's drinking cheap coffee every month? Anyway, it's good. In this part... You have three options. Oh, I, all right. <laughs> I know you're right. doing your reading, everything that's written on the page. Of course there. I am. I'm under pressure, Jen. I know, oh, no, well, I don't in? have time to consult with you. While you were laying up there on that mezzanine floor... like not a, for very long. Like, like... a don't oh, no, 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 like a smackhead, <laughs> I was oh, out it is a bit like that yeah it is like I was out of the Hammers of Apollo yeah. saving lives Jen someone <laughs> nearly died in the front <laughs> anyway like, I'll do that in the proper one um, like uh, if you'd like to listen uh, AstraZeneca litigation should we do that one yeah they or brand- the Oxycontin one all right, which do one do you like most? They're oh, all good. <laughs> okay. In this bit, we talk about them getting deliberately people addicted. Is that right, Jen? Are you happy yeah, now? Yeah. Did they deliberately get you addicted? Is that why you're laying around yeah. on a mezzanine? I wish talk? I could get addicted to something. I wish you'd get addicted to hard work, Jen. I <laughs> know. So I wish you get addicted to. All right, so have a listen to this section. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Is the opioid crisis the most glaring example of mendacity in the pharmaceutical industry? Is it particularly extreme? The um, Is it Sackler family? The Sackler family and the, the deliberate promotion of dangerously addictive opioids and synthesized opioids. Is, does that stand alone as a, a, a terrible example of, of neg- uh, malfeasance in, in the industry or, or is
1: it pretty normal? No. It does not. They happen to have a more dangerous drug. But the way they marketed that drug was just routine journeyman BS about convincing doctors to prescribe a more powerful drug that they had been comfortable prescribing before. So they tried to convince doctors that this drug is not addictive and it's not abusable and it's so safe that it can be used for routine pain. We used to just use chronic uh, opioids for cancer pain. And in fact, it was Purdue that made a long acting cancer pain drug based on morphine and their patent ran out. And the geniuses there came up with the idea of doing this with oxycodone, making the argument that oxycodone is less potent than morphine, um, so it's less addictive. In fact, it's much more potent than morphine. The whole thing is BS. So <clears throat> they, they are unique only in the mendacity, uh, their mendacity to impose the journeyman branding tactics on a population that was subject to it because of the socioeconomic conditions in the United States, and they found a brilliant market to exploit. So their, their exceptionalism is in their marketing, but their the whole project was no more evil. If you take, you could substitute many other drugs for opioids and you'd see the same kind of marketing uh excess the the one thing that they did that i thought was particularly deserves a badge of dishonor is um they sold uh, oxycontin as a 12-hour pain relief and they could charge more for it and the insurance companies paid for it and they made up this story about you get less peaks and valleys and when you have more even, um, uh, even uh, opioid effect, you, you require less drugs. They knew that it didn't last 12 hours. They had done a study early on before the drug was ever approved uh, in uh, women in Puerto Rico who had had gynecological surgery, gynecological surgery. And they knew from that study that a third of the people couldn't last eight hours, and more than half of them couldn't last 12 hours uh, with the pain relief provided by Oxycontin. They knew that. And what they did is they told the doctors that if your patients are having breakthrough pain before 12 hours, it means they're not on a high enough dose. And what they did is they cranked up the dose to addicted lo- addictive levels and that takes a very special kind of person to come up with that
0: yeah, that's a pretty unethical model. I, I, but I can see how it's sort of de- derived from, again, the maximisation of profit, which is not unique to the pharmaceutical industry. But I suppose what is unique to the pharmaceutical industry and, and is um, epitomised in the Hippocratic Oath is the idea that this is an endeavour pursued in, uh, in order to benefit human beings to take care of one another. Is there an argument that pharmacology and medicine ought be exempted entirely from profit-driven models because there is something inherently wrong about using people's pain and suffering to
1: derive profit. I think that argument has integrity. Um, uh, It makes perfect sense. I don't think it's politically feasible, but as a thought experiment, it works very well. I think the more feasible approach is to just acknowledge that when you have an unregulated market, when the integrity of the knowledge is unregulated, and it's very complex, that it will that that the commercialism will exploit and distort the um, recommendations for. Um, optimizing the health of the population that that's just a fact it has to happen if you play that game out a million times it's going to come out the same way a million times so let's just accept that and say that we need some referees here we um do you know the name Milton Friedman the conservative economist so yeah he's he's sort of an icon in the United States and in 1962, he wrote a very radical book called Capitalism and Freedom. And he posited that there's only three legitimate uh, functions of government, um, to maintain law and order, to enforce private contracts, and to ensure that markets work. And other than that, government ought to get out of the way and let the market, uh, let people decide by their participation in the market, what their highest quality of life will be. Well, if we Milton Friedman were resurrected now, we'd see that the pharmaceutical companies are not subject to law and order, to to the dictates of law and order, that they've been fined $38 billion over the last 20 years or so, and that nobody's gone to jail and no drug companies have gone out of business because they've been fined, and that the so-called law and order is a sham and there's slaps on the hand and everyone goes about their business making money. That private contracts, are not enforced because the drug companies own the data, and there's such asymmetry of information that the, the people who are buying the drug or paying for the drug have no idea what they're paying for, and that the market doesn't work. We've got a complex market where most of the drugs are paid for by insurance, and the marketing uh, has a certain uh, effect. Um, so, by if we just brought back Milton Friedman. And had government do the three things that he recommended vis-a-vis the pharmaceutical industry, we would get a long way towards um, optimizing the social benefit of um, medicines.
0: When you said earlier that eighty percent of the drugs that are licensed each year are do not improve the you know are not better than the drugs that are already out there, it made me realise you know that just to pursue the argument that I was just introducing because you say like you know it's impossible really to. Uh, heavily regulate pharmaceutical companies so radically that, that it becomes unrecognisable. I.e., if you, you, know, like imagine if a politi- politician or a political party stands on a platform of, we will control the price of uh, uh, of all pharmaceuticals. We will ensure that the information that doctors have access to is accurate information that is subject to the principles of science that we all know and love: double-blind testing, transparency. Openness, and furthermore, we will ensure that the profit motive is extracted from all pharmaceutical endeavour. Now, what you know, the counter argument for that, of course, is that the, the those enterprises would immediately shudder to a halt. And I, my my counter argument is: well, eighty percent of it is already unnecessary. So, eighty percent of it, we're not losing anything at all. Now, for that remaining twenty percent, we're going to need some people with. With some priorities and motivation that goes beyond the futile pursuit of economic gain. And in order to mobilize those people, we're going to need some principles and values that are dormant in cultures that even exist in sort of late Milton Friedman inspired capitalism values such as community. And togetherness and unity and service, all thing, you know. I'm not talking about sort of state, you know, communism and a lack of creativity and a lack of individual liberty and freedom. None of those things would, you know, work for me as an individual. But until uh, one of the main parties starts offering legitimate alternatives to this sort of uh, turgid status quo that persecutes and punishes ordinary Americans and people all around the world, then uh, by, by virtue of that fact, there will be ongoing stasis. But that is, we can see, even in the example of the 80%. Wanting control around drug prices isn't what people want, but there's a kind of a, a lethargy that's induced by lack of opportunity. The lethargy that's induced, the apathy that comes from lack of choice, lack of engagement. And I feel that there is room for radical change in this area just from listening to what you've explained to me in the last hour.
1: Well, I, uh, from your lips to God's ears. Um... <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you're enjoying this conversation, join me over at Luminary on Apple Podcasts for the rest of this discussion and for all the latest episodes of Under the Skin.